Welcome back to the First Year Teacher Podcast. Today's conversation is with Peter Gray. Peter Gray is the leading researcher in the world on self-directed education, as far as I'm concerned. He is a research professor at Boston College, my alma mater, and his book, Free to Learn, served as the foundation for my senior thesis on self-directed learning and intrinsic motivation. Without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Peter Gray. All right, so I was thinking that maybe we could start out this conversation um, with a little bit of background on your research. You mentioned in the prologue of Free to Learn about your son going to the Sudbury Valley School. And I might have lost you for a second there. Yeah, you you froze up there. <laughs> okay. Um, so I was saying, so you mentioned in the prologue, your son moving to the Sudbury Valley School and then corresponding with that, you shifting a bit of your um, focus for your research at BC. So I was wondering if you could walk me through what that trans transition was like for you. Yes, well, you know, I had been... Uh conducting research, really brain research with rats and mice and subjects, um, looking at the binding of certain hormones in the brain and how it affected maternal behavior in female rats, and also looking at some stress-related hormones and how they affected behavior, happily going along with that research. Not ex I have to say, not exactly passionate about it, but, but interested in it. And... Um, and then, uh, you know, meanwhile, I had a son who uh, started school um, and who uh, we were living in Framingham, which is a suburb about 30 miles west of uh, Boston College. And, um, he, and it was a highly rated public school, you know, the kind of school mm -hmm. that people would want to move to that community so their kids could go to that school. And he absolutely hated it. He hated it right from kindergarten on. He fought it. He felt like it was prison. He felt insulted. He felt um, he felt like he was being treated not as a human being, that his opinions didn't really count, that um, his interests didn't count, that he was being made to do things that seemed stupid to him and it may and nobody was willing to explain why he should do those things <laughs> yeah. and if they did explain the explanation was not satisfying to him and so school was just and this was from kindergarten on and um uh he fought it every step of the way through fourth grade and by fourth grade it got to the point where it was really intolerable um not just to him, but to the school itself. Uh, and his mother and I were constantly being called in for conferences because uh, they somehow felt that we should be able to do something about that. So, um, so at any rate, uh, the end result of it, I tell the story at the beginning of the book in more detail, and people could read the book to read the story in more detail. But the end result of it was that that it became very clear that it didn't make any sense for him to continue on in that school, that we had to be on his side rather than be fighting with him. We were not going to win that battle. And uh, there was no point in prolonging his suffering. The school, you know, wasn't doing the school any good for him to be there. <laughs> yeah. They were clearly would be happy for him to leave. We looked at a number of other schools, you know, I, um, there, there, as you probably know, there are a number of uh, progressive schools in the Boston area. Mm -hmm. And we thought, well, maybe one of those would work. They all have very high tuition, which we wouldn't have been yeah. able to afford on a Boston College professor's salary at that time. But, um, the, uh, but it looked like he would be able to get a scholarship uh, to go there. But he made it very clear that when he visited those schools that that wouldn't work for him either. <laughs> that this was just like a softer prison. <laughs> you know, it was a, like the guards were a little more gentle, <laughs> uh, you know. So 
But then we finally uh, visited the Sudbury Valley School, which is in Framingham. It was only a couple of miles away from where our home was, which in those days was walking distance for a nine-year-old kid. Mm -hmm. Today, you wouldn't let a nine-year-old kid mm -hmm. walk that far because you'd be irrationally afraid that somebody would snatch him away. But that was back when people were more rational and kids could walk to those distances themselves. And so it was, would be easy for him to go there. Uh, he was glad to go there. He would bicycle or, by, or walk to school. And he, when he visited school, he said, this is what a school should be. So this is a school that is as unlike school, like people's usual vision of a school as you can imagine. None of the trappings of school were present except the fact that there were a lot of kids there. And there were, um, there were kids there from age four through uh, teenage years, typical school age kids, but they're not segregated by age. There's no first graders or second graders, there's no high school students or middle school students and so on. You're just a student there. And there are, uh, you're, not you're, not set you're not assigned to specific spaces, regardless of your age, you could go wherever you want uh, at essentially any time uh on as long as you stay on campus and if you're above a certain age you can leave campus um, you should sign out to let people know you're signing out but you can go anywhere you want and e even little kids at least early on could go and explore in the in the state park that's adjacent to the school um, without necessarily signing out it's as if that state park was kind of a continuation of the campus mm -hmm. so uh he, so this is a place where kids are free and um, there's no tests, there's no courses even offered. Uh, but if there's a group of kids who decide that they want to have a course, they could get together and form one, but it only lasts as long as the kids want it. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and, they, and a staff member would usually take a, a role in it if they're asked to, but they wouldn't volunteer to. So that's the way the school operates. It's as different as you can imagine. All these things that we think are so important to children's education are simply missing there. They're not there. Mm -hmm. And so um, as you can imagine, I, as a parent, like most parents, um, was concerned. <laughs> you know, uh, I was very happy that my son was happy there. The glow returned to his face and his, the old eager, eager bright kid who he had been before he started school came back again and um and so that was wonderful but i began to worry um well suppose he stays here through he could conceivably stay here all the way through uh all of what would elsewhere be called his high school years and then um what would his life be like would he be able to you know the the common belief is in our culture that you kind of have to do school as we usually know it, or you're going to end up homeless or something. You're yeah. not going to have a good life. Um, so I began to wonder about the graduates of school. This was a long time ago. This was kind of in the late 1970s. Um, and um, I began to wonder already, though, there were some graduates. There were quite a few graduates of the school. The school had started in 1968. So uh, there were already people who had done all of what would have been their school years as students at the school and who are now out in the real world. And, um, and others who had done most of it or all of what would be their high school years that were out in the real world. There were about 90 such people. And um, so I, uh, to, to satisfy my need as a parent primarily, uh, to know what happens to them. I, uh, along with a part-time staff member at the school, did a study of the graduates. So we found, we located most of them. Most of them that we located responded to a very long survey uh, that we prepared. And what I found was that they were doing very well in the world. Um, those who wanted to go on to higher education were going on to higher education, including kids who had never taken a course in their entire life. They'd never taken a course. They had never taken a test unless, until they took the SAT test if they decided they wanted to go to a college that required the SAT test. Yet 
they were getting into colleges if they wanted to do that, including good colleges like Boston College, yeah. you know, <laughs> and even other, even some Ivy League schools in some cases, but they're going to a whole range of colleges if that's what they wanted to do. I couldn't see that they had any handicap in getting into college. I mean, we have, we have a society that believes not only do you have to go to a typical high school, but you've got to take those advanced courses. You've got to take certain courses. You've got to get all A's. You've got to get, if you're going to go to a college like Boston College or something yeah. like that, yeah. right? right? This is the belief that everybody's growing up with. Well, here's kids who didn't do any of that. <laughs> they didn't do any of that. And yet they were getting into colleges. That's what I wanted to do. And once in college, my study showed they were doing fine. Some of them said, well, you know, I took when I took a biology class, the other kids and had seemed to know some of the terms, uh, but they didn't know much more. They, and the truth of the matter is, uh, I'm talking myself now as a college ex-college professor. I'm retired from teaching now, but the uh, professors don't make any assumption that you remember anything from high school. <laughs> That's the truth. Whether you took advanced courses or not makes no difference. Everybody forgets what they learned in high school. <laughs> so they may remember a shred of it or two, but you can't, you can't, um, you can't depend on that. So you start from scratch, whether you're teaching biology or anything else, you start from scratch. And that's one reason you start from scratch. Another reason you start from scratch is, you know, college professors are arrogant enough to assume that even if they did take a high school course, it was probably taught wrong. You know? I'll so, teach you yeah. so you're going to start from scratch anyway and teach it right. And um, so, there, so it turns out they hadn't really missed anything, you know, <laughs> even though they missed it all they hadn't missed anything, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a pretty powerful statement about what we're doing in our educational system. We're, we're making people pass tests and people are learning material to pass tests and then, and then they pass the test and then they forget it. And that continues through college too, by the way, the same thing happens in college. So, so it's, it's wasted effort. We just make people nervous. We make people do all this work for no long-term benefit. <laughs> right. So at any rate, that was, that was a pretty startling discovery. The other thing is that, of course, not everybody went to college as you would expect. I mean, why would you go to college if you know that you can learn on your own? The people who went to college went for two reasons. One was that um, some of them were interested in careers that more or less the way we've got things set up in our society require a college degree. So if you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer or something, it's hard to go to, it's theoretically possible, but not really possible to go to, um, to go to medical school or law school without um, doing an undergraduate degree first. They pretty much require that. And similarly for many other kinds of jobs, although things are beginning to change in this regard, but many, many employers are looking for people who have a college degree. And so depending on what kind of career they were going into, people were going to college because they recognized they needed a college degree and they were getting it and they were doing fine and, and went on to good lives. There are others who said for the kind of career I'm interested in, I don't need a college degree. I'm, I'm starting, I'm, I'm interested in starting my own business. A lot of them, a lot of the graduates were entrepreneurs, even back in those days when there were fewer entrepreneurs than there are today. Some of them, those who were kind of going into what at one time was called blue collar work, were doing things like doing like uh, like being carpenters, being you know all these things are very creative activities. And but they were not working as part of a big company. They were working either for themselves or for a small company where they have a lot of influence on what they're doing. Some of them, uh, no surprise, were artists and musicians and even good enough to make a living doing it in the careers that are very hard to make a living at. And yeah. A couple of them are actually became stars. So the, uh, th so that's, uh, that was the study of the graduates. And it, uh, and, if, and it really turned my head around. I mean, here, I'd grown up in a very traditional way, went to school, pretty good student in school, um, went off to a good college and uh, then was teaching in college for 30 years. And, um, and so here I'm, here I'm observing people who didn't do any of that and they're, they're very satisfied with their life. None of them in that study said they regretted having gone to such an unusual school. Most of them said they were very happy that they had gone to such a school. 
And when I ask them about, um, you know, about how they think they, how they think the school benefited them, I got fairly consistent answers that it led them to take charge of their own life. Hmm. And if you take charge of your own life, there's no limit to what you can do. They began to not see themselves. They said they didn't see themselves as victims of society. They didn't see themselves as victims. They saw themselves as in control of their own life. If there were problems, they could handle them. They could handle these problems. And um, I think that makes an absolutely huge difference. If you are going through life feeling like there's all these constraints on what you can do. And there's all these limitations because of this and that, and because you had such a bad teacher or you had bad parents or this or that, all these things that we blame other people for what doesn't go well in our life. Um, they rose above that. <laughs> they, they, this sense of being in charge, this sense of what psychologists call an internal locus of control. I, could, I can control what I'm doing. That doesn't mean that there aren't constraints. That doesn't mean that there aren't hurdles. But I think that sense that I can take control, I can guide my life, I, can, I am the master of my fate. I think that was a, that was a very, that was, is, helps explain their success in life. Then there's another thing that happened. This school runs democratically. So the students, even the four-year-olds, have a vote on all the rules of the school. They have a vote on every major decision in the school goes to the school meeting. This is a school that's run not by not by uh, uh, administrators, how adult hired administrators, it's run by the students and the staff together. And the students, typically there are about 150 students or fewer now because of COVID, but there are typically about 150 students and uh, seven or eight staff members. So the students greatly outnumber the staff, right? Yeah. If it were ever students versus staff on some vote, the students would always win. It doesn't turn out to be that way. It's never students versus staff, as far as I could tell. So, um, but basically the students have the final say on everything, including the fire, hiring and firing of the adult staff members. Nobody has tenure at this school. Everybody's on a one-year contract and you have to get re-elected re to staff from year to year. You know, when this school was set up in 1968, the lawyers said, this is crazy. <laughs> you know, I mean, we're willing to advise you about it, but this is just crazy. You're having four-year-olds vote on who's staff member, <laughs> you know, it'll never work. Well, now, 52 years later, the school is still going strong, stronger than ever in some ways. Um, so isn't that remarkable? I mean, this just runs so counter to what everybody believes. And these are not necessarily, so you might think, okay, well, these must be really very special kids who go there. And I tried to look at, well, so who are the kids who are going there? Why are they going there? I knew why my son went there and he, he was a bright kid, but you know, he was a bit, huge pain in the neck at the regular school. <laughs> I mean, but then there were other kids who were there. Some of them were there because they'd been diagnosed with some learning disability and the parents didn't want to deal with that. And the learning disability, whatever it was, wasn't being dealt with very well in the school. And and so they were fighting the school. There were, there were kids who were uh, rebellious like my son, but rebellious in different ways. There were kids who were failing. They had been held back and the parents got tired of that. And so um, there were kids who were having psychological problems in school or drug problems of teenagers who had been taking drugs and, or who were depressed. It was not necessarily what the school system would think of as the cream of the crop. There were a few who might be in that category, but mm. they came for a big variety of reasons. And a lot of them came because they were having problems of one sort or another, as you might imagine. There were others who came just because their parents believed in it from the beginning. And yet it didn't seem to matter why they came in terms of my study. They seemed to go off, do well in life. Uh, regardless, there was something happening there where simply being told it's up to you. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell you what to do. It's up to you what you do here, and that is a very powerful message to young people. It's up. Your life is up to you. Mm. Your education is up to you, and um, and children take responsibility when they're given that responsibility. Right, and then connecting that to 
saying it's up to you, then children have to pursue something that they're intrinsically motivated to do. I want to go back to something you said when your son first went to Sudbury Valley School. You said that you saw the glow come back into his face, which is an interesting way to describe it. Um, and I want to touch on something here that I've heard you kind of briefly mention in a couple of talks, but it's this religious perspective on play. What is play from a religious perspective? Um, you talk about it a little bit in your TED talk. You say, you said play is God's gift to the world. Um, so I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, so, so I'm an evolutionary biologist or evolutionary right. psychologist. And I, and I, um, I look at human behavior from a Darwinian uh, perspective um, that, and so I, I primarily talk about how over the course of human evolution, we've acquired these um, educational, educative instincts, as I call them, play and curiosity and sociability, the desire to grow up, willfulness, all of these things served before we ever had school, served the function of education. And so when I talk about play, and I give a lot of lectures about play and how, what children learn in play, I often introduce the talk uh, by, um, by, by describing uh, my perspective and saying, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, from a biological perspective, play is nature's way of ensuring that all young mammals practice the kinds of skills they need to survive. And then I follow that up with often from a religious perspective, we might say that play is God's gift that makes life on earth worthwhile. We're looking at when by saying it that way, I'm saying we're looking at play in two ways. One way to look at play is that play serves this real life function. It is, it is how young mammals and especially young human beings practice the skills that are necessary for them to grow up and live a satisfying life. And I could, and that most of my talk, I go on and talk about mm. that. But I want to say at the same time that that's not why children play. <laughs> yeah. From their perspective, they are playing because it's fun to play, because it's meaningful to play, because it's, it makes life worthwhile. And I really want to remind parents that what would life be without play? Mm. What would, especially a child's life, anybody's life, what is the purpose of life? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, the purpose, you know, if you're not having fun in life, if you're not doing something that is really meaningful to you personally, chosen by you, what's the point? <laughs> you know? So I, so I really want people to think about play, not just in these pragmatic evolutionary terms, but also in, I suppose, what might be called more spiritual terms, thinking about play in terms of, of how, it, how it generates the soul, how it produces the, it, it makes it, it is, you know, it's from a humanistic psychologist would, would call it self-actualization or, you know, the, the, a religious person might call it being in contact with the divine. Um, these, these come in play. Right, there's different words that people use depending right. on their perspective. Um, right. And I'm really curious as I'm going to cat to teach at a Catholic school, thinking about what would um, Catholic schools look like if we treated um, children as if their intrinsic motivation was the Holy Spirit, as if God's presence is manifested in the way that they're curious about the world and, and have this desire to grow and develop. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And, um, the, uh, and it's, it's a kind of questions I've struggled with for a long, long time, not necessarily regarding specifically Catholic schools, but really mm. any traditional schools. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, schools, whether they're Catholic or not, um, all of what we usually think of as schools believe that their job is to impart, um, a specific curriculum to children, mm. and um, and that all children are supposed to go through that curriculum, 
And this is even more true today than it was years ago when I was a student. We have had No Child Left Behind. We've had Catholic schools may not have to follow that, but to a large degree, more they less, do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So the uh, so the belief is everybody's supposed to learn how to read at a certain age. Everybody's supposed to be able to add and subtract and multiply, divide by a certain age. Everybody's supposed to pass the same tests at the same age. We we operate on the assumption that all children should learn the same things in the same ways at the same time in their life. And that is a blatantly false assumption. It does not work. It absolutely does not work. <laughs> you, the only way you can make it seem to work is through coercion, making children do things they don't want to do. There's no way you're going to get 20 or 30 students in a class who all just happen to be interested <laughs> in this particular lesson that you that the curriculum says you have to teach there's no way that's going to happen no matter how wonderful a teacher you are yeah. no matter who though you can't do it and so the only way the teacher can do what the school is requiring them to do is to is to in one way or another force children to do what they don't want to do that's the prison-like nature of school that my son was objecting to. And that's true of essentially all schools across the board. As long as you have a curriculum, as long as you're testing students, as long as the teacher is required to do what they can to make sure students pass that test, hmm. you're, you're going to have coercion. You are not going to allow, you're not going to allow students to learn what they want to learn you are going to be suppressing their own curiosity, their own playfulness, so that they will do what the curriculum demands of them. And it's not, there's no ready way to change that. Now, when I, when I talk to people involved in regular schools, and I do give talks to regular educators, especially to early educators, but oftentimes to other people in education, they ask me, well, what can I do? I've read your book, Free to Learn. What can we do in our schools? And I say, you know, you're, you're not gonna be able to turn your school into anything like a Sudbury school. You're not going to be able to do that. You're not gonna be able to get, you would have to get rid of tests. Are, is your school gonna allow you to get rid of tests? <laughs> That's the first thing you'd have to do because as long as there's tests, there's a curriculum. And as long as there's a curriculum, there's coercion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody's gotta pass that, be thought the stuff. You know, the truth of the matter is in a place like Sudbury Valley or I've also studied grown unschoolers. These are people homeschooled, but without a curriculum. And so they're also following the interest. Everybody learns to read. I have yet to find somebody who didn't learn to read. They all learn to read, including kids who were diagnosed with dyslexia when they were in public school. They go to homeschooling or they go to Sudbury Valley, they learn how to read. They learn how to read without pressure. And they learn how to read because they're not being pressured. <laughs> and so the so at any rate, they learn how to read. They learn how to use numbers to the degree that they need them in their life. I have yet to find anybody who feels that they are really stuck in their life because they don't know how to use numbers. They don't know how to add or subtract or multiply or divide. Or if they go into a career that requires more fancy math, they all learn the fancy math that's necessary for them. There's no learning problems for people who don't have that kind of that kind of forced curriculum. But if you're in school, if you can't read by the time you're in, let's say, third grade, you are lost. <laughs> yeah. Everything depends upon reading at that point, by that point, even by second grade. And now you're kind of lost even if by first grade because ki kindergartners are being taught reading. Mm -hmm. And not everybody is interested or ready to read at that point. So you force them to read, you create for some kids blocks about reading that is then some point gets diagnosed as dyslexia, right? And so the, um, and so this is the system that we have and it's not, I don't think you can change it within the public school rule, but I think there are things you can do to make it not so bad. Mostly what I suggest to people when I talk to people involved with regular schools, whether public or private, is instead of continuously adding to the school day, instead of continuously increasing homework, instead of increasing pressure, do the opposite. Mm -hmm. 
reduce the school day, reduce the school year, reduce the pressure, reduce the number of things you're trying to teach, increase recess, <laughs> increase summer vacation, and work with parents to help parents understand that there are all kinds of amazing and life, life skills that are really important that children learn when they've got free time, when they have time to play and explore, develop hobbies, pursue their own interests. We've been depriving children of those opportunities. We didn't used to deprive them as much as we did. So, you know, I was a kid, I, I'm 77 years old. So I was a kid in the 1950s and we had school then, but the school day was five weeks shorter than it is today. We've added, we've taken away a whole month of summer vacation from kids' lives. We've taken another week during the school year of vacation from their lives. The school day when I was an elementary school student was six hours. It still is six hours in many places. Some places, though, it's seven hours now. But we've often added a very long bus ride. And even kids who don't who live within a couple of miles who could easily walk to school <laughs> are bused. Yeah. So they're spending an hour on the bus and an hour back. Add that to your seven day, seven days of school, and you've got a longer than an adult work day. <laughs> you know, we decided at the end of the 19th century that uh, child labor is wrong for children, that they should not be working full work weeks like adults are. And now school has become uh, like an adult job. They're spending, they're spending in many cases more hours doing school and school work at home, counting homework, than their parents are at full-time jobs. Little kids. <laughs> right. This is, you know, we decided long ago, this is child abuse to do that. But we are now engaged in this kind of child abuse through our schools. We have turned school into a full-time job. And I know many kids who would far rather work at a factory than go to school because they actually see themselves as more free, would see themselves as more free in the factory than at school. Mm. Sometimes I tell parents, would you, I, I just, I remind them of what the school day looks like for a child, how every, almost every moment is governed, how they even have to ask permission to go to the bathroom, how they're not allowed to talk to their co-workers <laughs> while the lesson is going on, how they're not allowed to share information because that's cheating, right? How they're told exactly how they have to do their work. I said, would you accept a job like that? <laughs> would yeah. you accept such a micromanaged job? I have yet to meet a parent, meet right. an adult who would say, I would, I would, I, I would, I would yeah. like that kind of, a, uh, nobody would want, nobody would stay at that kind of a job. And yet we force our children to go to that every day and then we wonder why they get burned out and why they don't want to go to school right. one, of, one of the things that i also suggest to schools and there are a few schools who've done it is have require that every teacher spend one or two days shadowing a student meaning that you have to do you have to follow that student around you have to go to every class you have to sit through every one of those classes <laughs> you have to do the same homework the student is doing and then think about it. <laughs> and they that's hard for them to do even one day of it. <laughs> yeah. It is so boring. It is so <laughs> time consuming. And then they begin to think, wow, what are we doing to our kids? So I think that so I think so that's so I'm always encouraging, you know, reduce, get rid of homework for elementary. They know when I was a kid, there were elementary students didn't have homework. We this is a new thing. There, there may be in New York City, I think some of them had homework. That New York City was always ahead of the times. But the most of the country school homework began in secondary school. And and even then you had a study hour or two. And if you were at all bright, you could do the homework without taking it home. Um, and but now kids are even little kids are lugging worksheets and books back and forth between home and school. So they're not free of school even when they're home. And parents are involved. They're supposed to be monitoring this child's school work and making sure they do it. All of this, none of this is helping their education because it's just burning them out. 
all this, there's no evidence at all that all this extra homework is actually improving learning in any kind of long-term way. Less teaching would result in more learning. Less, less uh, homework would result in more learning because people wouldn't be burned out from it. So we need more opportunities for children to play and explore and do their own thing. One thing, another thing that I've that um, I'm part of an organization called, or I was part, I'm no longer, I've stepped down from, formally from the organization, but I still work with it called Let Grow. And through Let Grow, we've worked with schools uh, to bring more free opportunities into schools and not just increasing recess because recess isn't the ideal play environment for in most schools. It's age segregated. It, there's often a lot of rules about what you can and cannot do. And it's so time limited in many cases that you can't really get into real play and recess today in most schools. But what we've done instead is gotten schools to, although we have gotten them to increase recess to some degree, more interesting than that, we've gotten schools to introduce what the schools tend to call play club. Um, and this is an hour and most schools that are doing it are just doing it for one hour a week, which isn't enough, but it's the beginning. One hour of free play where all the kids in the school, this is elementary school, all the kids K through 12 are free to play together. They're not age segregated mm -hmm. and they can use the whole playground. They can use the gymnasium. They can use the school hallways. Mm -hmm. I've observed kids running in the hallways and, throwing the stuff down from balconies, all kinds of things that you would never allow in school normally. Yeah. This is all going on. The kids are having a wonderful time. <laughs> and the teachers who are monitoring are letting them do it. Yeah. And the uh, and it's just working out great. I mean, at first people thought this would be terrible. The kids would fight. There would be bullying one another. The teachers would have to intervene. I instructed with the first groups doing this, I instructed the superintendent of schools and the and the uh, principals of the schools to in turn instruct the teachers who are monitors that while play club is going on they are not teachers <laughs> their mm -hmm. job is not to not to intervene not to tell the kids what to do not to break up little squabbles um, their job during during this play free play period is to be like a lifeguard on the beach if somebody's looks like somebody's life might actually be in danger <laughs> or serious wounding or something really expensive might get broken that would really matter intervene otherwise don't yeah. and even if you're going to intervene count to 10 first to see if it doesn't resolve itself before you do intervene every they all thought they were going to have to intervene that there would be and they haven't they've been amazed they've some of the schools reported we've never had to intervene there's something about this fact that the kids feel respected. They treasure this time and they want to keep this time. And there's also, there's magic in the fact that it's age mixed. So people think that there's danger in age mixing because they think the older kids will bully the younger kids, or they think that the older kids will be a bad influence somehow on the younger kids. The opposite is true. Older kids, there's actually a number of research studies. I've done one of them, but there are other studies too that show that when younger kids are present, older kids are nicer than they normally are. They're nicer, not just to the younger kids, but even to one another. It's as if the presence of younger children brings out the nurturing instinct in older children. So even kids that might be kind of bullies when they're in an age segregated environment, become more nurturing and caring in this age mixed environment. So what happens when the teachers don't intervene is something really quite wonderful. So you might see a couple of little kids getting into a little bit of a squabble or a little bit of a tussle or a fight and some older kid will come over and say, hey, what's going on here? Uh, <laughs> you know, how can I help here? Let's, uh, <laughs> what's the problem? And this is so much more effective than if a teacher came over and, and, and said that same thing because First of all, the little kids really kind of in a certain kind of different way than the way they respect a the teacher, respect those older kids. They, they can kind of identify with the older kids. They're not so much older than themselves. And so, and they're kind of, they're kind of proud that they got the attention of this somewhat older kid who cares about them. 
And so that's very effective. And then the old, what is the older kid getting out of it? This, this kid is learning how, learning I can help somebody else. I can be the mature person. E even somebody who's eight years old or six, seven years old is the mature person in relationship to a five-year-old. And I can, I, I, and it gives a sense of maturity, a sense of um, I can be responsible to help other people. I'll, I'll tell you one other time I was observing Play Club, and um, it happened to be a time the, the a public television program was news program was doing was uh, filming it, and they wanted me there. And Norse Skenazy, who was uh, the other person who helped to start. Um, the let grow and and sponsoring play club and she and i were there and and i said to the camera person i said so look over there there's a there's a little child who looks very sad he looks very unhappy everybody else is happy having fun and i said keep keep an eye maybe keep the camera on that child and see what happens and i'm hoping that a teacher does not intervene the, under normal circumstances, a teacher might see that sad child and come over and say, I need to cheer this child up. I need to do something to help that child. I was glad to see no teacher intervene. They were following their instructions. They're not supposed to intervene. So the sad child was feeling really kind of lonely and left out. As we were watching, an older girl came over and started chasing this little boy. Yeah. And within seconds, they were both laughing and giggling and having a great time. Now, I don't know what the older girl's motive was, but my bet is that she saw that that little boy was happy and she said, I know how to cheer him up <laughs> yeah. and, and have fun at the same time. And I don't think they were siblings. They were, you know, they were racially different, looked different. And so I don't think they were siblings. I don't think this was an older sister who was cheering up her younger no. brother. I think this was just an older girl, probably a fifth grader who saw this little kindergarten child looking sad and she wanted to do something about it. But what a wonderful learning experience that is for everybody yeah. involved. If a teacher had gone over, that little kid who was feeling sad would feel all the worse. No, he, he would feel he, like no, I... Didn't. I am so separated. pathetic. Yeah, I am so pathetic that a teacher has to come over yeah. and cheer me up. That would not have solved the problem in the long run. That might have, in some sense, solved a problem in a very short-term basis by just talking to the teacher. He's got something to do. But, um, but children learn really valuable lessons when we let them solve their own problems mm. and we are too reluctant to let them solve their own problems we mm. are too quick to intervene and solve their problems for them now let me ask about um so you have these experiences for example Sudbury valley school or the play club when this is working so well um i'm curious to hear your take on i worked for a nonprofit that deals with people involved in gangs and gun violence in boston and some of the elements of this kind of freedom and age mixing and a lot of uh, choice for action and not too much parental involvement are present in these most like poor communities. So I'm curious to hear your take on what is it that might lead to more positive outcomes in an environment like Sudbury Valley School as opposed to something like gang activity. Yeah, that, that's a that's an excellent question. Um, you know, I don't want to romanticize um, young people. People can be cruel to one another. <laughs> people can be, you know. Um, let me. This is a little bit tangential, but I think it'll work towards what we're talking about. I remember um, many years ago when I was a college student in New York City. Uh, one of the jobs I had to help earn my way through college was uh, working at a youth center called the Clinton Youth Center, which was in a very um, poor neighborhood uh, in Manhattan. Uh, this was before Manhattan got yuppified. <laughs> and it's, uh, and there were, these were people living in quite poverty. Um, uh, mostly uh, Black and Puerto Rican uh, living in that neighborhood at that time. And this was, uh, the Clinton Youth Center was run by 
was owned by the YMCA, but it was for kids who couldn't afford the, the actual YMCA. And so this was free and kids could go there after school. And I remember, um, I, and so I was, and this was this rundown building, a kind of a rickety old building. It had a rickety gymnasium in it. It had a lot of donated stuff, uh, art supplies and stuff like that. And it was on a street that was a kind of a dead end street. And so there was very relatively little traffic on that street. So this was in the 1960s. And um, there would sometimes be uh, over a hundred kids there after school um, of all ages, all the whole school age range from, from five-year-olds on through teenagers. And they would be playing indoors, they'd be playing on the street. And this was in the kind of neighborhood where many people, many white people were afraid to walk because they thought this was a dangerous neighborhood. Um, so I was hired as an assistant. Um, you know, I have some background in as a basketball player and they thought that I would be good to play basketball with the kids or something like that. And I was a college student and they thought there'd be some advantage in connecting them to a college student. So I, I, was, I would be there during this after school period. And the only other person there was the director of the place who was African-American. I think he lived in the neighborhood. He was the most soft-spoken person I've ever met or one of the most, and he, and he had a stutter. He couldn't, he wouldn't be able to raise his voice if he wanted to raise his voice. So here were I, I had kind of a skinny, 19 year old and and this af shy soft-spoken african-american with a stutter we were the only adults present huh. you would think this would be a recipe for all kinds of fights and violence and illegal activities it was not <laughs> now i don't have a full explanation as to why that was true um, but i think that the things that um I think that the, the following is true. Number one, this was valued by the kids who were going there. This was something, this was a place they could go. <laughs> it was, uh, it was a, and, they, and, and, and they wanted to preserve it. <laughs> they didn't want this to disappear. They cared about it. Maybe kind of in the same way that Sudbury students care about their school. They don't want, you know, like if somebody comes if somebody comes to the Sudbury Valley School who thinks that they can use illegal drugs on campus or they can drink on campus or they could do other illegal things on campus, other students will say, no, you can't do that here. Mm. And they, they will tell them that they're getting feedback from their peers saying, you can't do that because that could destroy the school. Now, I have no idea if kids are telling one another that there, but I think in some point, at some place, they valued, this was in their neighborhood, this was their neighborhood. I think that's part of it. The second part of it is it was age mixed. There were little kids present as well as older kids present. In many cases, I'm sure there were whole families of kids present. Your younger siblings are there. Part of your responsibility is to take care of your younger siblings and so on and so forth and make sure this is a nice environment. I think that's the second reason. And I think a third reason is they saw, I think there was actually an advantage in the fact that that, that director who couldn't raise his voice and me this skinny 19 year old white kid we couldn't have been able to control them <laughs> there's nothing we to. could have done yeah. <laughs> absolutely nothing <laughs> you know, if they decided to run riot or to do illegal things we couldn't have controlled them so there was part of them that knew to make this work we've got to control ourselves <laughs> you know so I think that there's something to that. Now, I'm not saying this is the whole problem. That I'm not saying this is the whole solution to gang violence. I'm not saying that, and I'm not an expert on, you probably know more about that than I do because I haven't been involved directly in studying that. But I, but I, I, I think that um, to the degree that we can create environments, we can create situations, we can create opportunities where children young people are age mixed, where there are positive things for them to do, where they're respected, where, they're, uh, where they have 
personal responsibility for what's happening. I think to that degree, regardless of what background you're from, regardless of what neighborhood you're from, um, things are going to work out much better than if you're in a situation where that's not true. So if you're in a situation where the only people you're interacting with are, are and the only heroes on the, on the block are drug pushers, you know, mm -hmm. well, that's the environment you're growing up in. But if you're in a situation where you're seeing all these other people and you're involved on a regular basis with these other people, um, I think that's a much healthier uh, way to grow up. And so to the degree that we can, that, that, that um, we can create these opportunities. I think, for example, the Boys and Girls Club is a good is a good idea. But unfortunately, Boys and Girls Clubs that I've visited have become a little bit too much like school. You know, they're mm -hmm. instead of free play and you decide and inter and uh, interacting cross age and everything is more and more like a place to help kids with school or where have certain certain kinds of adult organized activities, including sporting activities. I think if I think if something like the Boys and Girls Clubs could be operate more like the Clinton Youth Center, which could be done far more cheaply than right. Boys and Girls Clubs operate, I think that would be a much more healthy environment. And I think there would be more people coming to that kind of a situation. And I think that would do a lot to reduce the uh, reduce um, uh, juvenile crime and and gang violence and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's helpful. I want to be respectful of your time. We just have a little bit of time left. Um, sure. But two rapid fire questions, if that's all right. Sure. All right. So the first one is, are there any um, books that you have often gifted to other people that come to mind? <laughs> um, I would say... Uh, no, unfortunately, no, I have to admit, I don't, uh, I haven't given many book gifts to people and it tends to, uh, and it's, there's no um, uniformity in what, <laughs> and what they are. <laughs> okay. And then this last question I have for you is a fun one. It's so if you had a billboard, metaphorically speaking, that you can place up, maybe you can post it on the side of gas and, or, put it somewhere where millions of people are going to see what you write on this billboard. What do you think you would put up on it? So uh, it partly depends on who I thought would be the biggest audience for that billboard. But let's suppose that I believed that I was setting this billboard up for parents and prospective parents to see. And what I would probably say is listen to your kids get to know them uh, because I think that we have we're, we are in a world where we are always telling our kids and talking to our kids and um, but are we really listening to them are we really respecting them and their opinions I think that's a great place to wrap up thank you so much for coming on and talking with me I really appreciate it thank you